Bibles with me this morning to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Today we come to the end of this series on the Beatitudes that we've been calling the Pursuit of Happiness. Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in three of the Gospels in different ways. We've been going through Matthew's account today and these last weeks. And Jesus gave these eight statements that he said lead to the blessed life, lead to a life that is a life marked by happiness. When Jesus spoke the word blessed, the Greek word there was the word makarios. I've been showing this word here most weeks because um, that word there means to make happy. When we think when someone blesses you, we put a very spiritual connotation on it. And we think, oh, it's like a, like a bendicion. You know, like when you leave home, you ask your parents to bless you and to pray safety over you or to put blessing on your life. But here Jesus is literally saying, look, when you live this way, I'm going to make you happy. Life is going to be one marked by happiness. So in our pursuit of happiness, we want to pursue the Makarios life, the life of being blessed. And what Jesus was teaching on was the conduct and the character of the kingdom coming down to earth in the presence of his followers. And just a quick review, we started off week one by saying uh, that when we're poor in spirit, that we proclaim we have nothing really good to offer you, God. Uh, we're poor in spirit. God blesses us and he makes us rich. Uh, we talked about blessed are those who mourn, those who realize I'm broken, I sin, I fail it. We receive comfort when we admit our need for God that way. Blessed are the meek, something that's missing a lot in our culture. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We talked about what that means. Um, we talked about blessed are the merciful. Those who've received the mercy from God can now give that mercy to others. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit have this pure, uh, or, or pure in heart, who have this pure heart towards God and towards people. Last week we talked about blessed are the peacemakers, and today's message is perhaps the most difficult of all the blessings. This is the one that most people say, this is a blessing that I'd rather live without. It's a very difficult blessing, but yet a very timely blessing. So open with me to Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. This is what Jesus says as he concludes these Beatitudes. He says, God blesses those, God makes happy those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus is saying those who are persecuted are going to be made happy through him. We would need many weeks to go through all the historical persecution that Christians have endured over the time. From when the church was birthed, after the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman government suppressed the church, persecuted the church, uh, made it an art form of, of executing and eliminating Christians. That has continued for 2,000 years to the present day communist and socialist regimes. Um, so Christians have been persecuted throughout history. Uh, I, I say this with the understanding and the full admittance that the church, the Christian church, has also been on the persecuting side of things as well. Okay, uh, The church is not innocent in this game of persecution. It has persecuted others, and the church itself has been persecuted. But that being said, it's staggering to consider that since Jesus' crucifixion, 70 million Christians have been martyred. 70 million Christians in 2,000 years have given their life because of their faith. Now, you might kind of consider that number think, wow, 70 million Christians. 
That's a lot of people. What's even more staggering is that half of those 35 million have been martyred in the last 120 years. There's some stats here from the Open Door Network. There's still countries in the world where persecution of Christians is, is very severe, where it's prevalent and where it's growing. You can see a map here of just how much of the world there is a culture that is against Christianity, against those who have a profession of faith in Christ. Also from the Open Door organization, these are uh, real-world numbers today about how Christians are being persecuted. Um, they say that every month, over 300 Christians die for their faith, every single month. That means over 10 people a day. If you break that down and do the math, it means every two hours, every two hours, a little bit over two hours of every day of the whole years, a Christian is losing their life because of their faith. Consider that. Every two hours, another Christian has died because of their faith. Two hours from now, at 1241, another believer will have died because of their faith. The attacks on the properties, 214 monthly attacks, 772 forms of violence committed against Christians um, in the world. These are everyday stats. Now, now the blessing in this, the silver lining is this, is these are things that we don't see in this country. These are things that we're blessed by the grace of God that we most likely will never have to endure in our lifetime. These are things that are happening mainly in other countries around the world. But why is this message timely for us today? Well, it's because things here in this country are changing. We are quickly heading to a post-Christian America. A post-Christian is defined as a time when Christianity is no longer the prevailing uh, belief system in the country. Uh, the Barna organization released some, some statistics here, uh, the Pure Research Center as well, um, about the decline of Christians. You can see uh, that over the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, the number of Christians has dropped by almost 10 million, but while the number of non-religiously affiliated people has grown by 30 million. This is a trend that's going to continue. And at some point about over here, these two lines are going to intersect and welcome to post-Christian America. This is going to be a society where there's more people who don't believe in God or any kind of faith than there are self-professed Christians. The Barna organization also released this paper called The Most um, Post-Christian Cities in America. This is in 2019. And when they ranked their cities, you can see our city, Chicago, uh, ranks at number 27. So Chicago is the 27th most post-Christian city in the country at 48%. That means if you talk to the random people in the city of Chicago, about 48% of them will say that they have no religious affiliation, no belief in God. That number is also changing. So that is what makes this message very important because in a society where, where people will be against what you believe or think that you're a little crazy for what you believe, guess what comes with that kind of culture? Persecution comes with that culture. Now, we might, again, not experience the violence or the attacks like they do in other countries, but there is a level of persecution in this country that comes through the form of pressure. The pressure for you to be quiet, the pressure for you to conform, the pressure for you not to put your faith public. 
uh, the pressure for you to go with the flow of things and not say that you're a Christian or not say or be open about what you believe. There is a real persecution in this culture, in this country, that exists in that way. And that's what makes this message very important. Jesus continues here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, and he says, God blesses you when people mock you. Anyone here ever been mocked because of their faith? I don't know about you, but the mocking of Christians seems to be getting stronger and stronger as time goes by, doesn't it? He says, God will bless you when people mock you, when they persecute you, when they lie about you. No one here ever been lied about? When they say all sorts of evil things against you. Has anyone here ever had something spoken out against them for what they believe? Jesus is saying that he will bless you, that God blesses us. God makes you happy when you endure these things. Because what? Because we're his followers. So I've entitled today's message, Handling Opposition. For us to be the believers that God wants us to be, we have to know how to handle opposition. What was Jesus saying here when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted? He's saying that following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Listen, there's people on TV, there's people that have written best-selling books, there's people that are very popular on social media who will lie to you and say that when you follow God, your life is going to be nothing but happiness and nothing but joy, and you're going to be debt-free, and he's going to make you a millionaire, and you're going to be driving a Rolls Royce, and you're not going to experience any marital problems, and your kids are going to be perfect, because with Jesus comes real happiness. And guess what? What Jesus is saying is here is, no, 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 no. When you follow me, guess what's going to happen? Persecution's going to happen. Why? Because his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. And his ideals and his ways and his ethics do not fit into the culture of this world. So when you try to live for Christ and what he the way he explains life, when you live with those ethics, you stick out in this world. You stand out in this world. And for some people, that rubs them the wrong way. Rubs them the wrong way. Jesus said persecution will come in many forms, and following him will come with a cost. But praise God that the promise is still there when he says theirs will be the kingdom. He gives you his whole kingdom when you experience this persecution. Being a follower of Christ means you live in a way that's opposite to the culture of this world. And that means you can't be ignored. You stick out. We're, we're not called to live lives as Christians incognito, asleep. A covert Christian is what I call them. You're never meant to be lived that way. When you're really living your life for Christ, I love what Clarence Jordan said. He was a very influential theologian in the middle 20th century. He was a farmer. Um, he wrote a book about farming and how that relates to the kingdom of heaven. But Clarence Jordan says this. He says, it is difficult to be indifferent to wide-awake Christians. When, when there's a Christian whose life is public, you cannot ignore them. You cannot just walk past them and not think anything. Society is either going to do two things to them. Society is either going to crown them or they're going to crucify them. And you'll probably receive a mix of both. To people of like-minded faith, they will crown you. But to anyone of unlike faith, they will crucify you. Because when you follow Jesus, you're either living your life really right to some people or really wrong to others. 
you try to live for God, you will get pushback. You will get resistance. Maybe not violence, but you will get opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Again, here maybe it's not violence, maybe people are not losing their lives, but it's this silent pressure, this quiet pressure that society will put on you. And I'm glad there's a lot of young people in the room because your generation is feeling this the most of anyone. Because those numbers, what's pushing those numbers of non-religiously affiliated people is millennials and Gen Z. And the next generation after Gen Z will be even higher amongst those categories. So if you're a young person here, this message is even more important to you. And again, this is saying, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But my plan today is to do this. I want to share with you three benefits because the Bible makes it very clear that we benefit when we're persecuted, believe it or not. So there's three benefits to persecution. And then I want to leave you with six ways to handle opposition. Six ways that you can practice when you leave these doors in your everyday life of how to handle opposition well. Because we have to be people who are ready for this because, again, the culture is changing. Opposition is intensifying. So let's start with three benefits to spiritual opposition. What does encountering opposition do for your life? One, it makes you more like Jesus. Understand that whenever you suffer any kind of persecution, whether it's heavy persecution, whether it's your family rejecting you because you're in this church, maybe you were baptized and your family turned your back on you, or maybe because you left one religion to join a Christian church, or because your workplace is very secular and very liberal. Whenever you encounter any kind of persecution, it always makes you more like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was persecuted. He made this very clear at John 15, verses 18 and 20. He said, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Haters are going to hate, Jesus says. And if they hated him, guess what? They're going to hate you. And in verse 20, it says, since they persecuted me, naturally they're going to persecute you. So whenever we suffer persecution, we are becoming more like Jesus. Jesus was hated by many. Jesus was hated by the, by the people in power, by the status quo people, because Jesus disrupted the status quo. Jesus was revolutionary. Jesus lived life upside down. Jesus came preaching a message that saying the last will be made first and the weak will be made strong. And the people who were in power, the people who had the voice, the intelligentsia of society, the elites of society, the people in power, they heard that message and said, who is this guy? He was hated by the status quo people. But man, did sinners love Jesus. He was loved by the maligned. He was loved by those who lived on the margins because he brought them into the center of life, into the center of culture. And when we live in a way that honors God, guess what? You will suffer persecution. But take heart because it makes you more like Christ. If you're suffering persecution, you're doing something right. You're living more like him. 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. That means when you encounter persecution, it's because you're ruffling the feathers of this world culture that despises you. 
That means people see the Jesus in you. And just like he was hated, just like he was persecuted, so will you. So persecution benefits us in a way that it makes us more like Jesus. The second way opposition blesses you is that it strengthens your faith. Opposition strengthens your faith. Growth always happens in the face of resistance. This is a natural law. This is a physical law. And this is a spiritual law. When you go to the gym, hopefully some of you go to the gym, and you work out, your muscles grow when they encounter resistance. It's the tension that the muscles feel. It's the weight of something pushing back against you. It's, it's, it's the, the force of your strength against a force that's trying to come against your strength that produces what? Growth. Muscles only grow in the face of resistance. And faith only grows in the face of resistance, in the face of opposition, in the face of tension is where your faith grows. Now, my question to you this morning is, are you facing tension for your faith? In your daily life, do you experience resistance because you are a believer of Jesus? Now, if you're not, you're probably not experiencing growth because faith grows in the face of resistance. We know this to be true. That's why the strongest believers in the world are not in this country. For the most part, believers in this country, we fold like a deck of cards to culture, to, to the politics, to the game. Culture wins over the church in America because, because here we, we lack this resistance training that in other countries they develop from a very early age. I hope you understand that while you were sleeping last night, there was churches in some parts of the world where for them to have a service like this might cost them their life. While you were sleeping last night, people were literally laying their life on the line knowing that if they were to get caught in a worship service like this, they might be taken out somewhere and killed because of their faith. That is where the strongest believers live, in, in nations where they're being persecuted, where there's real danger for being a follower of Jesus. Why? Because they encounter this resistance on a daily level. On a daily level. Are you encountering that resistance? 1 Peter 1.7 says, These trials... The persecution that you're existing, that you're going through, will show that your faith is genuine. What shows that your faith is genuine? The resistance, the trials that you go through. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. So he's comparing your faith to gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. Gold is just a, a metal, but your faith is more precious than gold. So Peter continues and he says, So when your faith remains strong... Through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. When you encounter persecution, it strengthens your faith. It strengthens your faith. The last way opposition benefits us is that God rewards it. God rewards the opposition that you face. Spiritual opposition will be rewarded. Jesus says, God blesses those who are persecuted, for they will receive the kingdom. That's one reward that you receive. Jesus offering you his kingdom to you. Let's continue here in this very same teaching. 
the first part of the beatitude was that Jesus blesses those who are persecuted. 5.11 said God blesses you when people lie about you, when they uh, speak evil things about you, when they mock you. God will bless you. And in Matthew 5.12, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, be happy about it. Talk about upside-down living. You want me to be happy, Jesus, when people mock me, when they criticize me, when they, when they speak evil about me because I follow you? Listen to what the promise is here. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Jesus says a great reward awaits those in heaven who are persecuted. A great reward doesn't await those who are self-righteous. And listen, if you're being persecuted because you are a follower of Jesus, because you're in people's face 24-7, and you're kind of a jerk about your faith, that's not you suffering persecution, okay? That's just you being kind of goofy. So if you're the kind of person who goes up to people and says, repent or go to hell, then people kind of talk about you about behind your back and say, what's wrong with that person? Man, they're a little crazy. And you say, well, I'm suffering persecution. No, you're not suffering persecution. You know what? You're a little bit off. You live your life in a way that's a servant, that's here to serve people, here to bless people, here to introduce people into this Jesus, to love them and to walk them into their full potential. And you suffer persecution because of that. There's a great reward awaiting for you. Now, remember, the promises of God are always twofold. There's a present component and there's a future component. The promises of God always have a future and have a present. This is a future reward. It's saying, hey, in heaven, there's a great reward for you. But there's also a present reward for you. And you know what that is? Makarios. In this life, on this side of heaven, here today, you will experience the happiness of God. Not only that, but there's a greater reward waiting for you in heaven. So opposition benefits us because it makes us more like Jesus. It strengthens your faith, and God rewards it. And this would be a great message if we just said hallelujah and prayed right now, right? But you would say, okay, now how do I do this? <laughs> when I go to work on Monday and they're hating on me and they don't want to see my Bible at work, or my kids judge me because I'm trying to drag them to church, how do I handle that? What do I do? Here are six ways to handle opposition well. Number one, when you encounter opposition, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised by it. You should never be like, oh, people don't like me because I'm a follower of Jesus. Shocking. You, we should not be caught off guard by that. Jesus warned us that in this world you will have trouble. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? He said, naturally, if they hated me first, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So don't be caught off guard. The first way to handle opposition is not to be caught by surprise like this is something shocking, like the world is against you because you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Don't be caught off guard. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. As if something strange were happening to you. Some people will not like what you're doing. And listen, I'm just going to be very honest with you this morning. And this is it's worth its weight in gold, okay? This could really be a whole separate uh, teaching on its own. 
when you begin to follow Jesus and you discover your purpose and your value and your worth and who he is, people are going to hate you. People are going to come against you. And listen, it's not so much because of what you're doing. Hear me well. When people come against you because you're following Christ, it's not so much because of what you're doing. It's more about them. What do I mean by that? Because you might be saying, well, what does my faith have anything to do with them? It's my faith. Here's what it has to do with them. People, some people in your life will not like this new version of you. They will not like the version of you who knows their worth. They will not like the version of you who understands your purpose in life. They will not like the version of you that's strong, that's grounded, that's rooted, that has faith. You know why? Because they can no longer manipulate you. Because they can no longer take advantage of you. Because they can no longer control you. And when people feel like they've lost control of you, guess what they do? They get angry. And they get upset. And they'll begin to mock you. And they'll begin to spread lies about you. And they'll begin to speak evil about you. And it's not so much about what you're doing, but it's always about them. And some people will hate you because they can no longer control you. So never be surprised when you walk back into that old stomping ground after you have God in your life and some people revolt because they don't like the new, powerful, faith-filled, spirit-filled version of you. They like the broke-down, easily manipulated, no-backbone, spineless, jellyfish person of you. So remember, it's never really about what you're doing. It's more about them. But don't be caught off guard. The first way we handle opposition well, don't be caught off guard. Number two, you have to reject the fear and the worry. One of the first emotions that we'll feel when we encounter opposition is that fear and worry will enter into you. And that's normal. That's natural. But how do we overcome fear and worry? Just like last week when we talked about peacemaking. Peacemaking is scary business. Going into a place and offering forgiveness and, and, and letting things go uh, could be a scary proposition for some people. And the enemy will use fear and worry to stop you from making peace with people because he wants to keep you in a troubled state. And, 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 and here, uh, the enemy will use fear and worry to have you crumble to opposition because it's his tool. It's his tool. But how do we overcome fear? Uh, the Bible says that perfect love, a perfect love, where does the perfect love come from? It comes from God. The perfect love of God does what? It casts out fear. It throws fear to the side. You see, when we understand how much we're loved and how much God has for us and how his presence is there, we could overcome the persecution because the perfect love casts out fear. Do you know that love? Do you possess that love? It's like a child attending school for the first time. I've seen many uh, parents, some with tears in their eyes, releasing their four- and five-year-olds to go to school for the first time. And that child there is crying as well, right? Because they're afraid. They're leaving mom and dad. They're going into this new place. And it's, it's the love and it's the assurance of a parent to say, I'm going to be here when you get out. I'm going to be here to pick you up. I love you. It's going to be great. It's that love and that assurance, that closeness that allows that child to overcome fear and walk into a school building? What allows us to overcome the fear and worry of persecution? It's that loving, close, reassurance relationship with God. That love that casts out fear. And, and can I also say this to take it a step further? Uh, fear and worry is a choice. 
It's a choice. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it, right? We've talked about that already. So don't worry or be afraid of the threats. Instead, here's your choice option. So one choice, worry. What's the other instead of worry? Worship. Worship. Instead of worrying in the face of persecution, worship through it. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. You have a choice. Do you panic or do you pray? Do you worry or do you worship? Do you have faith or do you have fear? If you remember the story of Stephen, the first martyr in the Bible, as he was getting stoned to death, what was, his, what was he doing? He was raising his hands and praising God in the face of the people who were about to kill him. It's a choice. It's a choice. To handle opposition well, you have to reject worry. You have to reject fear. Number three, you also have to reject shame and embarrassment. This is another great tool of the enemy, shame and embarrassment. And man, I, I really want the young people to listen to me well. Because the peer pressure you will encounter to stay silent about your faith will be so overwhelming. And the way that the enemy will keep you tucked into a corner and keep you quiet is that he'll put shame and embarrassment upon you for you not to say anything, for you never to share your faith. Shame and embarrassment are a powerful tool of the enemy. It's always easiest to go with the flow, to stand with the tide. 1 Peter 4.16 says, There is no shame. There is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. I'm going to say that again. That's a good word right there. There is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. The question you have to ask yourself is, whose approval are you after? This is essential. Listen, some of you in this room will miss this, and you will live your life choosing to please people, and you will miss your purpose. And when you sit on that judgment seat, God will sit across you, and maybe perhaps will say, you did well pleasing people. Go be with many of them. Away from me. <laughs> You have a choice. Are we living for the approval and the pleasing of people? Or do you live for the approval and pleasing of God? Approval is a drug. Approval is a drug. And many of us, even some of us in this room, were addicted to it. Do you have an approval addiction? People who have approval addiction, it's usually rooted in a low sense of self-worth. Now that self-worth that's low is usually a result because of trauma, childhood experiences, abuse, insecure attachments, and those are all real wounds and real pain that need healing. And listen, if you are a person with approval addiction, I want you to let you know today that there is a way out. There's a way out where you can live free of feeling like you need to get people's approval in your life to feel like you're worth something. You see, because the beautiful freedom that exists 
is that the approval that comes from God is not something you have to work for. You see, the problem with people who have approval addiction is that they're always feeling like they got to work and work and work, and i got to prove and prove and prove just so people could like me, just so people could approve of me, so I could feel like I'm worth something. And, man, that's a cage. You're living in a cage when you make yourself subject to people's approval. You live pleasing people and missing God in the process. When God wants to bust you out of that, there's a security that comes from knowing that you've been approved by God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. For we speak as messengers approved by God. This is Paul, the persecutor of Christians. Hear me well. This is a man who murdered Christians for a living. Someone who should never have been able to feel the approval of God. And here he is boasting, making it public that God will even approve of a person like me. So never feel like you're far from the approval of God. God will approve you, and God will endorse you, and God will bless you. He could break you free from that cage. But are you after his approval? Are you for approving people? See, there's no shame for living for Christ this way because you've been approved. You are an approved messenger, approved by God, and entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Man, there's a freedom that exists from shame and embarrassment when you live your life to please God, not people. Man, there's so much freedom there. Because you know what? I'm no longer worried what you're going to say. I'm not longer worried how you're going to judge me. I'm no longer worried about how you come against me. Because you know what? As long as I know I'm pleasing God, it's good. It's good. It's good. Break free of the addiction. Number four, and let me wrap this up quick. Very important, number four, know your enemy. Know who you're really fighting against. Whenever persecution comes, this might seem like a surprise to some of you because most of the time the opposition seems to be so up in your face. Uh, the reality of things is not always as it seems. There are seen realms and there's unseen realms. And the battle that we fight um, in the physical realm, in the natural realm, is not really a natural fight. It is a spiritual fight. You need to know who your real enemy is. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, famous verse. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities in the unseen world, mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. What does this mean? This means your boss is not your enemy. This means your coworker, that one that drives you crazy, that is not your enemy. That means that family member that rejected you, they are not your enemy. That means the spouse that, that, that comes against you, they are not your enemy. Your child is not the, the enemy. The political party that you vote against, they are not your enemy. The people on social media that post crazy things that drive you crazy, they are not your enemy. They are not your real enemy. Satan is your real enemy. And he's slick. You know what people who are slick do when they know they can't take out your dad? They go after the dad's kids. He knows he can't take out dad. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to go after their kids. So he comes after us. And the people he uses, listen, they don't know what they're doing. 
What did Jesus say on the cross as they were crucifying him? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the enemy will use people as pawns in his game to bring persecution to your life. And, and when you understand that that's the nature of the battle, listen, battles determine the weapons, okay? When it's a boxing match, two boxers step into the ring. They're not going to bring a machine gun into the boxing ring because the rules of that battle determine that their fists are the weapons. When there's two people playing chess, they're not going to bring boxing gloves to move the chess pieces because in that battle, the nature of that battle is mental. They're bringing their minds to that game. And in our battle, when we understand our battle is not natural, what it'll do is it'll change the nature of weaponry that you use to win that battle. Are you tracking with me? You see, that where we go wrong is we think this is a natural battle, so we bring natural weaponry to this battle, thinking our smarts and our cleverness and our keyboard warrior skills on social media will win this battle, our argumenting skills will win this battle, and that's not helping, church, because you're fighting the wrong enemy. When we understand this is a spiritual battle, we need to switch to spiritual weaponry. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 4 says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds, the human reasoning, to destroy false arguments. What are your weapons that you should use in the face of persecution? One, the Word of God, which is called the sword of the Spirit. Two, prayer. Pray like David prayed in warfare. Three, worship like Jehoshaphat worshiped before going into the war. Four, fasting, like Esther fast before going to visit the king. Thanksgiving, offer thanksgiving up. That is a weapon of warfare that's not human, but it's spiritual. Like Paul did when he was sitting in a jail before the walls came crumbling down to give him his freedom. Your testimony is another weapon of your warfare. So know your enemy. Trying to win the war against persecution any other way is just distraction. It's just distraction. Number five, reject taking revenge. Whenever you suffer persecution, reject taking revenge. When we reject taking revenge, we imitate Jesus. We turn the other cheek. This is perhaps one of the most difficult things we, we could do to handle opposition well because the enemy will throw everything it has at you. Romans 12, 17 says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. Here it is. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. You see, people who are vengeful people, they just have a lower view of God. Do you know that God is a just God? You know that everything that's been done against you in your life, God sees and God keeps record of. And sometimes we have such a low view of God and such an elevated view of ourselves. We think, oh, I know how to even the score. And what do we do? We nurse, we curse, and we rehearse. That means you nurse your hurt when people persecute you. You nurse it, you seed on it, you think on it. That means you curse it, you let anger build inside of you. And all we could do is think, 
rehearse it. How am I going to get back? What am I going to say? Ooh, when I see this person, I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say this, this, and this. How many of you just sat in your car on the way driving to work, rehearsing the comeback that you were going to give that person? How many of you have done that? Don't raise your hand. We're in church. Or before school. Or before the work meeting. You just rehearsed it. You had it planned out. Ooh, I wish, ooh, I wish they, ooh, I, I hope, I hope they say something to me. Because we nurse, we curse, and we rehearse. And we have such an elevated view of ourselves, like what we're going to do is going to get us vengeance. Listen, God, his ways are not our ways. The vengeance that he could give out is way better than anything we could ever do. Way better. So let it go. Let it go. The battle is not yours. The battle is whose? The battle is the Lord's. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is who? Vengeance is the Lord's. So never revenge what has been done to you. Don't pay back evil with evil. And can I just say this to you? Whenever you react in anger to people, whenever you react in a way that people want you to, you're giving them control over your life. They control you when you react that way. Stop letting people control you. Remember, they prefer the easily manipulated version of you, not the strong, God-centered man and woman of God that you're becoming. So don't give people that control over your life. The last thing with this, the hardest for last, repay evil with good. If you're going to handle opposition well, you have to repay evil with good. It, this goes beyond just not taking revenge, okay? This makes it even more hard, and this requires all of the previous beatitudes. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to be meek. You need to be merciful. You need to be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You need to be pure in heart. You need everything that Jesus has set up to this point to be able to do this. Luke 27, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. One of the hardest scriptures in the Bible. This is one people wish they could cut out and throw away. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. It takes courage to respond in this way. The example I think about when I think about this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He embraced this principle of not paying back evil with evil, but of being nonviolent, of rejecting revenge, and blessing those who cursed him. On August 5th, 1966, Dr. King walked into Marquette Park. At that point, Marquette Park, right there on 71st in California, Kedzie. At that time in the history of this city, that was one of the most racist neighborhoods in this entire, in a city known for its racism. This was one of the most notorious racist communities in this whole city. And Dr. King decided to take his message of peace and of racial justice through Marquette Park. And as he walked through the park, residents of the community, white residents of the community, threw rocks at him. They threw tomatoes at him. They threw um, eggs at him. They threw everything that they get their hands on him. At one point, hitting him in the head with a rock where he went down to his knee and the people had to make a human shield around him just to protect them from the attacks. Dr. King went on to say that uh, of everything he endured in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, he had never encountered the level of hatred towards people of color like he encountered here in Chicago. Not even in the South. 
And yet, after he visited Chicago, when asked, why do you do the things you do? This is what Dr. King said. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate. It adds deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He could have repaid evil with evil. He could have done it the Chicago way. I'm sure there was people willing and ready to go to war for him. But he preached a message, this man of God, imperfect as he was, preached a message of nonviolence, of not paying back evil with evil, but returning evil with good, with blessing. If if we want to be people who live the kingdom of, of heaven on earth, we need to be people who know how to handle opposition well, how to handle it well. And the hardest thing is not repaying evil with evil, but paying back evil with good. Can we stand together?